All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us on this um, August-long weekend. It's wonderful to have you here this morning. If you're visiting with us or joining us for the first time, you're currently joining us in the second week of a sermon series where we're looking at some, some messages of hope in the book of Isaiah, particularly some messages about how God is bringing reconciliation and healing to his people. And so with that in mind, I'd invite you to turn your attention to the screen where Shen will read our passage for us today. Today's scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 17. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In C.S. Lewis's beloved children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it begins with a young girl named Lucy who's playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with her siblings. And Lucy finds herself hiding in a wardrobe. And she moves farther into the wardrobe to go behind the fur coats so that she won't be found. But to her surprise, as she keeps moving farther in, she doesn't encounter the wooden back of the wardrobe. She takes another step and another. And soon she finds herself feeling the prickling of pine needles against her arms. She takes another step. She feels the gentle fall of snowflakes landing on her nose. Lucy has walked through the wardrobe and she's come out on the other side into the land of Narnia. This is a magical world, a world filled with talking beasts, mythical creatures like centaurs and fawns, and adventure around every corner. And Lucy soon discovers that the world of Narnia is under a terrible curse. You see, the white witch, Jadis, has enthroned herself as the queen of Narnia, and she is terribly mistreating and abusing the animals under her charge. If one of them so much as displeases Jadis, she turns them into stone. The animals tell Lucy that they are miserable under the reign of this witch, and that in Narnia, it is always winter. Always winter, and never Christmas. And they long for someone to come, a hero, a deliverer to 
go toe-to-toe with this white witch to defeat her and to break the spell that she's cast over the land. Well, soon Lucy is joined in Narnia by her three siblings, Peter, Susan, and Edmund. And as the story unfolds, the four children find themselves in the home of two kindly beavers. They're sitting at the dinner table of these beavers, and once they finish dinner, the beavers lean in, and with excitement in their voices, they say, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And this immediately sparks questions in the children. Who is Aslan? Aslan, well, he's, he's the king of all. He's the lord of the whole wood. And when he comes, everything will be all right again. Well, is he a man? No. He's a lion. The lion. He's the king of the beasts, I tell you. And upon hearing that Aslan is a lion, the children become alarmed. They say, well, I, I think I should be frightened to meet a lion. Is he safe? And if you've read the, the book before, you know the famous line that's coming, don't you? Aslan? No, he isn't safe. But he's good. Everything will be all right when Aslan is here. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, God's people find themselves in a, simil- in a very similar situation to that of the creatures in Narnia. Israel has been conquered by an external nation, the nation of Babylonia. The people have been subjugated, humiliated. Many of them have been dragged off to Babylon. And for God's people, it feels like it is always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. And God's people long for a deliverer to come, to go toe-to-toe with their enemy and to break the curse on their good land. And the prophet Isaiah, in the passage that was read for us today, he plays the same role as those two beavers did in Narnia. He gathers God's children to himself and he leans in and says, your king, your redeemer, the Lord God is on the move. Now the people might have questions, what is this redeemer like? And Isaiah unpacks a vision of who their savior is. And what we see is that just like Aslan, The redeemer of God's people isn't safe, but he is good. Our passage today begins in verse 9, when the prophet invites Jerusalem, Zion, to go up a mountain and to lift up their voices to shout good news. And what is this good news? Well, if you look in verse 10, the people are to shout, behold, the Lord God comes with might. Or if we're to put this in the words of C.S. Lewis, Aslan is on the move. And now Isaiah is going to spend the rest of this poem unpacking who is this Lord God who is on the move on behalf of his people. Look with me at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. One of the images that the Bible often employs to describe the relationship between God and his people is that of the relationship between a shepherd and the shepherd's flock. He's the shepherd and we are his sheep. And a good shepherd is one who is both tough and tender. Uh, Growing up, we had a family friend named William, who is himself a shepherd in Scotland. 
And the last time that William was in Canada visiting with my family, he told me all these stories about what his work is like as a Scottish shepherd. Based on that conversation, I determined that if you were going to write a book on all the ways that sheep get themselves into trouble, that book would be several inches thick. One of the things that William has to do as part of his job is he has to go out into his flock each and every day looking for sheep who have fallen on their back. You see, if a sheep has a thick wool coat after the winter, or if it's a ewe who's pregnant with a lamb, and it falls on its back, it probably can't get back up. And so as a good shepherd, he has to be tender. He has to keep his eye out for those sheep that are struggling. And he has to go to them and pick them up. William also told me another story about times that he has to be tough as a shepherd. Um, He told me that often in the summertime, he'll wait till the sun goes down. He'll grab his wee torch, flashlight for those Canadians here, grabs his flashlight and a pellet gun, and he goes into the flock looking for rats that spread disease and that bite at the feet of his sheep, and he has to shoot the rats. So William, as a good shepherd, is both tough and tender with his flock. The New Testament continues this um, idea of God as our shepherd. Jesus, in John chapter 10, speaking of himself, says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus goes on to compare and contrast the differences between a good shepherd and a hired hand. You see, a a good shepherd stays when there's trouble, but not so with a hired hand. When a hired hand sees that there are wolves coming or robbers coming, he says, this is not worth the money. And he abandons the sheep to be mistreated by those robbers or wolves. But the good shepherd, on the other hand, he stays. He stays to the point of laying down his life for his sheep because he loves them so dearly. One of the most moving scenes in all of the Chronicles of Narnia, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular, is when Aslan lays down his life for one of the children, Edmund. You see, Edmund had betrayed his family. He betrayed the other creatures in Narnia. He'd gone over to the side of the white witch. And the witch meets with Aslan and she says, you know, every traitor belongs to me. I have a claim on his life. And in that encounter, Aslan makes a deal. He agrees to trade himself for Edmund. He lays down his life for Edmund. And there's a very moving scene where Aslan walks sadly and alone into the camp of the white witch. His paws are bound together with rope. They affix a muzzle over his face. They shear off his golden mane. They mock him, spit on him, kick him, and humiliate him. And just before the white witch plunges the dagger of stone into Aslan, she leans down and whispers in his ear, and she says, you've accomplished nothing. Once you're dead, there will be nothing to stop me from taking Edmund as mine again. The witch thought that that day was her ultimate victory. And yet she was shocked and dismayed near the climax of the book, the great battle, to find that Aslan was there again, roaring, filled with more life than he had ever been filled with. 
And the last thing that the witch knew was a feeling of dismay and terror as Aslan came down upon her. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We are the vulnerable and clumsy sheep. And Jesus is tender with us. He knows that when you've tipped, when you need help, he comes to you and picks you up tenderly. And Jesus is the tough shepherd. He doesn't run away when the wolves come. In fact, he threw his very self to the wolves such that we might live instead. And so the first thing that the prophet wishes for us to know today, he wants to invite us to behold. Behold your king. The good shepherd is on the move. Let's continue into verse 12. In verse 12, Isaiah references a a number of tools which would have been used for common household tasks in the ancient world. He talks about a measure, a span, balance, scales, and so on. And so you can imagine, you know, today if you're having a deck built on your property, um, the workmen would come and they would use a measuring tape, right, for a household job. Or perhaps you're someone who likes to cook and you know that for certain recipes you need to be very precise with your ingredients and you use a kitchen scale. Well, Isaiah says that God uses these, you know, sort of household measuring tools as well, but he uses them on a cosmic scale because that's just how big God is. Several weeks ago, the James Webb Telescope released some really astounding images of the night sky. Did you hear about that in the newspaper? Um, apparently, the telescope was looking at a very small part of the, uh, the sky. So small, in fact, it'd be like taking a single grain of sand, putting it on your thumb, and holding it out at arm's length. Really small part of the sky. And in fact, if you looked at that part of the sky with your naked eye, it would look empty, black, like there's nothing there. But what did the telescope see? Thousands of galaxies, each containing millions or billions of stars. Our universe is it's, it's mind-boggling in terms of its scale, its vastness, its beauty, and its mystery. And Isaiah tells us in this text that God measures our universe with a span. A span is the distance between one's thumb and little finger. When I was in my undergraduate, I was an arts and humanities student, and at my school, we were all, if you were in arts and humanities, you were required to take one course in one of the STEM subjects. And what all the arts and humanities students did at my school, we all took astronomy. I remember that first astronomy lecture, there was 450 of us sitting uh, in the, the auditorium, and the professor said, hands up if you are a science student no hands went up. So this was, you know, it was for those of us who didn't understand these things. I learned a lot of amazing things about space in that course. I learned that in 2005, scientists landed a probe on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. Isn't that amazing? You can actually look this up on your phone. You can look at pictures from the surface of Titan a moon of Saturn. And what you'll see in that picture, you'll see this hazy sort of orangish atmosphere. You'll see rocky ground and rivers of liquid methane. It's quite literally out of this world. I learned in that class that there are these things called pulsars. 
These are um, neutron stars. They're much more massive than our Earth, and they spin really quickly. That's why they're called pulsars. And we found out that the, the pulsar that spins the fastest so far is a pulsar, remember, it's much more massive than our Earth. It spins 700 times a second. Incredible. Uh, a few years after taking that course, this is more recently, I learned that science, uh, scientists discovered a new planet, which was creatively named 55 Cancer E. And this planet is twice the mass of Earth, and the entire surface is comprised of diamonds. Our universe is amazing. It's amazing in its vastness. It's amazing in its diversity, its beauty, and its mystery. And God measures it with a span. We can look through our telescopes at the most distant images of space and time, and God is there. We're going to continue to discover things in the next years that make our jaws hit the floor. And you know what? God, as a wonderful artist, created each of those things. And he's been enjoying them, even though we didn't know about them until quite recently. In the New Testament, John chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that through God's word, through Jesus Christ, everything was made. And without him was not anything made that has been made. We can learn about black holes, pulsars, planets made of diamonds, the moons of Saturn. All these things made through and by Jesus Christ. The prophet invites us to behold, your king, the maker of all beauty, is on the move. In verses 13 and 14, Isaiah goes on to explain that God himself is the foundation of all goodness and justice. C.S. Lewis, the, the author of um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, also wrote many books of nonfiction. One of the most popular of which is his book, Mere Christianity. And in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis invites his reader to really listen the next time you hear two people having a quarrel, an argument about something. He says, if you really listen, you're going to learn something about human nature. You're going to hear those two people quarreling and you're going to hear them say things like, that's not fair. You promised I was here first. That's my spot. I shared with you yesterday. Why won't you share with me today? And Lewis points out that when you hear people arguing like that, what's going on in that moment is that there are two parties, both of whom agree that there is such a thing as right and wrong, fair play, decent behavior, morality, a law of nature, whatever you want to call it, both parties agree that that exists. And the first party believes that the second party has violated those rules. If there is an agreement between the two parties that there is right and wrong, they can't even have a quarrel. There's nothing to quarrel about. In the same way, if you're watching a basketball game with some friends and you think that a foul has taken place, you can only have a conversation about that if both parties agree there are certain rules to basketball and that fouls exist. But the question comes, where did this idea of decency, morality, fair play, a law of nature, where does that even come from? And Isaiah tells us it comes from God himself, who is the source of all goodness, justice, decency, fair play, and so on. 
And so the next time that you feel angered by an injustice, you know, you hear that someone's being treated poorly because of their, their sex or their skin color, or you read in the newspaper and you hear that yet again, Ukrainian civilians have been targeted by the Russian military, and you get angry about those things, you're angry because you are made in God's image, and he is good, and he is true. The prophet invites us to behold your king, the good and the true, is on the move. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Now, it's important again to remember the audience to whom Isaiah is writing. His original audience was the nation of Israel. This was a nation of people that had been pushed around by much larger nations in the ancient Near East, Assyria, Babylonia, and so on. And Isaiah is saying, you know those nations, they look so big, so unstoppable, so powerful, they are a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. They are as nothing to God. A couple weeks ago, my wife Erica and I watched um, one of the greatest films I've seen in years, Top Gun Maverick, yes. Yeah, you know it's good. And when the credits rolled at the end of that film, I could not get out of my seat. I was so overwhelmed, so emotional at what I just experienced. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it in the theater. It's very, very good. But you know, when you're watching Top Gun Maverick, you can't help but be awestruck by American military muscle. That's kind of the whole point of the film, I think. And when I went home, I was curious. You know, I was like, man, those aircraft carriers are cool and I did a bit of Googling, I found out that the U.S. military has 11 aircraft carriers supported by over 500 Navy warships. They have over 13,000 fighter aircraft, 1.5 million military personnel. They spend 750 billion on their military annually, and they have over 3,750 nuclear warheads in their arsenal. Most military scholars agree that America, in a conventional war, could go toe-to-toe with China and Russia at the same time and win. Incredible military power. And yet the Almighty God looks at these most powerful nations in our world, America, China, Russia, and so on. Dust on the scales. A drop in the bucket. Isaiah invites us this morning to behold your king, the Almighty, is on the move. In verse 17, we learn that the proper posture or response to this king is that of worship. Worship the king as he reveals himself. And in the text today, he reveals himself as the good shepherd, the creator of all beauty, the good and the true and the Almighty. But the challenge is, and I think perhaps if you're like me, you might be more comfortable with some of those attributes than you are with others. The shepherd sounds great, but what about the Almighty, you know? And I think the danger can be that we prefer to worship a God made in our image instead of worshiping him as he truly is. We prefer a tame lion. We prefer a predictable lion, an explainable lion, 
a safe lion who fits in a neat little box. But the problem is that isn't who God is. If we want to worship God as he truly is, if we want to worship this king, the Bible invites us to look to Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the image, the embodiment of the invisible God. Jesus is our good shepherd. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. He is the good and the true, and he's our almighty king. And the good news is that Jesus is on the move. Jesus has fought for you. On that day 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross, the enemy thought that was his moment of triumph and that we were his. But the biblical story continues that Jesus came roaring back to life three days later. He has fought for you. He continues to fight for you today. And the enemy knows his days are numbered. Your king is on the move. He's on your side. He isn't safe, but he is good. Thanks be to God. At this point in our service, we do have time for some engagement with the sermon this morning. And so um, if you would like to text in a question, I'll have some time to interact with that now. If, if you don't have time to text in or if I don't have a chance to get to your question, please email me, graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, at gracetoronto.ca, and I'd love to interact with you over email. Tark, do we have any questions this morning? Yeah, um, here's your first one. Uh, if all these nations are just a drop in the bucket, why do we matter? And if we matter, why is there so much suffering? Why does it feel like the big nations are winning? Yeah, I think um, one of the commentaries I was reading, because one of the lines that Isaiah uses, he said that these nations are as nothing, as nothing. And we could read that and think that they don't matter at all. Um, That's not what Isaiah is trying to communicate. One of the ways that... One of the ways that um, Jewish teachers would, uh, would communicate truths to their pupils is they, they'll use comparisons. So, um, you know, look at this mighty nation. God is so much bigger. So it's not saying those nations don't matter. It's really highlighting the vastness of God. Um, sorry, Tark, do you mind rereading the second part of that question? I think I'm... Uh... Um, why do we matter? If we matter, why is there so much suffering? Why does it feel like the big nations are winning? Yeah, I mean, I think you really, you're expressing exactly what God's children felt while they were in captivity in Babylonia, right? They, they understand it's not supposed to be this way, um, and they long for deliverance. Um, so I, to be honest, I don't have a neat and tidy answer for you. I, I think it's good you're wrestling with that, because if there is a good God who is also almighty, why, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Right? It's a good question to ask. What we do know is that history will culminate in our king acting on our behalf. History will culminate in, in the same way Aslan comes and makes everything right. Jesus is going to come, and there is going to be a reckoning for how people use their power. Stop there for that one, Tariq. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Um, Second question. So if people want a safe, predictable, and understandable God, and he is not these things, how can we develop trust? How can we rely on a God that is constantly a mystery and unpredictable? Mm. 
I, th- I think I would uh, point you towards the end of my sermon where I encourage you to look at Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will baffle you. Um, I-, I remember reading uh, some time ago um, when Jesus' family comes to him and he's, he's with a group of disciples teaching. And the disciples say, teacher, your, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? But those who keep the word of God. Right, that, that baffles, I don't really know what to do with that. And so I think, I think um, there's the story of, of the Stepford Wives. You might be familiar with that, that there's this futuristic society where men build robots to be their wives. Right, they're these, these gorgeous supermodel robots who are perfectly deferential to their husbands. They always clean, they make food for them. It's very sort of 1950s ideal of a housewife. And what these men find out through the story is that's not a real relationship. It's not a real relationship if the other party can never have their own opinion, disagree with you, push you, or challenge you. And so I think we need to constantly be looking at Jesus Christ for who he really is instead of creating a Stepford God. Do we have time for one more, Tark? Uh, yeah, just one more text. Uh, let's see. Oh, hello, I sent you an e-transfer. I think that's the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I think that's it. For Is that for me? Uh, well... <laughs> What a way to end. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tark. All right. Well, thanks, Graham. Well, if you have some questions and comments, if you'd like to chat with Graham later or give him some money, you're welcome to come up afterwards. I'm sure he'd be pleased to chat with you. Uh, let's, Let's pray. And as we do that, we'll move into our time of reflection. Heavenly Father, thank you that that you are a good God. And we pray that uh, from these words, we would take them, that we would use this week to behold you and all your greatness, uh, that we would meditate on this scripture, and that we would know that you are a God who uh, can be trusted. And you've showed that to us at the cross. And so we pray that you would bless our reflection in our time, that we would be people who are longing to love you more and serve you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please uh, rise and join in our song of reflection?